G'day, I'm Robert. I uh, attend the evening service and I'm reading the Bible today from 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 1 and going through to verse 16. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues to pray day and night to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Hi everyone, my name's John Thorpe. I'm the minister here at City Anglican. It's great to have you with us. Let me pray as we get into this passage. Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, we're so thankful that you speak through those you inspired and make yourself clearly known. We thank you that we can learn from the experience of others that we might grow to be the people you have saved us to be. Amen. What do you do when the number of people that need help exceeds your capacity to help? So we need to ask questions like, well, what resources do we have available? And then how do we use those resources efficiently and effectively? But then we need to get to those harder questions like who really needs help as opposed to who just wants help or who are the most vulnerable in our community? How do we help the vulnerable, but at the same time encourage independence and personal responsibility? 
And I think that's particularly a question for us in our entitled culture where we expect people to help when we're in need. And if it's about financial resources, then how should we spend it? Should we spend it providing uh, fish or should we spend it uh, teaching people how to fish so they might be able to help themselves in the future? In the world of Ephesus, one particularly vulnerable group of people were the widows. Now, they weren't the only vulnerable group, but they had limited opportunity for income. There was no social welfare system. If they had a family around them, then they could rely on their family. But if not, they really were at the mercy of others. Of course, widows aren't the only vulnerable you know, group of people within our church community or within our society. But in this passage, it helps us to think through, well, how do we care for the vulnerable? But there's also a whole bunch of other issues uh, that as we look at these young widows and think through, how do we avoid some of the pitfalls that they were facing as we think about how we use our time and how we use our time well? So our passage from last, last week was focused on Timothy as a young leader. And it can be summed up in one verse where it says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. And that life includes a love and a concern and a respect for those that he is leading. And so starting at verse 1 in our passage for today, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. One of the challenges of being a young leader is you have positional authority and lots of passion, lots of energy, uh, but not always the wisdom of experience. And so that makes young leaders, I think, particularly vulnerable to getting it wrong uh, relationally. So all the way through this letter, Paul has been encouraging Timothy to command and teach what is really important about following Christ. And at times that means saying hard things and making hard decisions. And so that takes a real strength. But at the same time, it needs to come from a place of respect and from a place of humility. So Paul encourages Timothy to respect older men as if they were his father. It doesn't mean he doesn't rebuke them if they go in the wrong direction. But even when he says hard things, he's saying hard things from a position of honouring that older man as a father figure. At the same time, he should treat younger men as brothers. Uh, it's the idea of leading from beside rather than thinking you can lead from above and, and shout at people below or you know, charging over the hill and expecting everyone to follow. When it comes to the women in the church, leaders are to honour the older women like a mother. And like a father, uh, that includes recognising the wisdom and experience that comes with age. So in the words of Proverbs, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Finally, they are to treat young women like sisters with absolute purity. Uh, purity can simply mean honourably, but it also has a, a sexual undertone. And certainly we see the relevance of that command in our own experience. If you've been in churches for a while, you'll know there are just too many examples of leaders, and particularly male leaders, 
who have ended up in sexual relationships with those they are leading. And it doesn't matter whether it's consensual. It's completely inappropriate. Here are people who are supposed to be leading in godliness and they're actually leading these young people astray. And of course that has a profound impact on their relationship but also has a profound impact on the church. And the higher the positional authority of that leader, then the more damage that's done. But absolute purity is more than just forming an inappropriate sexual relationship. Uh, women in our church shouldn't feel like they're being flirted with. It doesn't matter whether they like it or don't like it. It shouldn't happen. They shouldn't feel like they've got to endure you know, sexually suggestive language, you know, whether it's from a leader or from anyone else. They shouldn't feel like they're being ogled uh, by people and looked at as they walk in uh, to the room. Uh, they should feel safe and respected. And those who are leading should be leading by example. So Paul has acknowledged everyone generally, but now he goes on to speak about widows specifically. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And then immediately he goes on to talk about what it looks like to be really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. So the widows who have a Christian family shouldn't be in need. And we see the same point restated right at the end of our passage today. In Australia, there's all sorts of financial support for vulnerable people in our community. Uh, but there is a principle here. Uh, if we have family who are in genuine need, then we have a responsibility to look after them. Uh, so that might mean providing crisis accommodation uh, when they're left without a home for a time, or perhaps you know, supporting them with a, a particularly large you know, medical bill. But then there are those less tangible but still very significant needs. Uh, we all need to know that we are loved and valued. We all need companionship. And that means as family, we need to commit time and effort. Uh, not just in a crisis, but in the day-to-day -day realities of life together. Uh, I used to live in Greenacre for a number of years, which is near uh, Bankstown, when I first left Bible College. And one of the things that I found kind of amusing when I first got there, but also uh, wonderful and beautiful, was how families would sit in their garage and they'd set it up like a lounge room. And so you'd have you know, Nonna sitting on the couch and Mum was there sort of folding the washing and the kids were playing on the driveway and, and Dad and, and their son were you know, sort of tinkering on the car. And it was just this beautiful picture of these generations just sharing the, the mundane things of life. And in amongst that, you can see this sort of real mutual benefit, you know, that each generation being a blessing to the other. Uh, it's this wonderful picture. Now, uh, that can't be the situation for every family. Uh, it's certainly one way of looking after the vulnerable in our family. But if that's not how we live, then how do we love one another? And I appreciate that right now that's not easy with the current restrictions. And for many, these restrictions are a real source of frustration and grief. But at the same time, how do we look for those meaningful expressions uh, to love those who perhaps feel most isolated within our family. And so that might be, you know, just making more time to give them a call and see how they're going. It might be if they live locally, having the opportunity to go for a walk or, you know, meeting up over Zoom. 
Uh, but beyond our sort of present crisis, what will that look like going forward? You know, how do we really value our family and how do we make sure that they feel loved? And at times that's going to need to mean making different life choices and setting up different priorities so that we've got time for our families. So in our passage, when it comes to widows, families have a first responsibility. But if the family isn't in a position to support the widows, then what should Timothy do? And so Paul now lays out some criteria for narrowing this list down to those who are in genuine need. Uh, So from verse 9, No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. So firstly, the widow should be older and not younger. And we're talking like really, really old, okay, like 60. Now, I appreciate uh, that I've now just offended half the people watching. And these days, you know, old is is no longer 60. Uh, But in that time, in in Roman times, when lifespans were a lot shorter, uh, 60 was really talking about those who were the most elderly in society. Uh, So that's one criteria. But then he goes on to talk about good deeds. And I think this section makes us feel a little uncomfortable because there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of grace. You know, God saved us when we didn't deserve it. Uh, He died on the cross for our sin. So we kind of feel that we should then show the same grace to others. Shouldn't we show grace to the widows no matter what their background? Uh, There is certainly at least some emphasis in this passage on widows who deserve help. But I think the bigger issue is the genuineness of their faith and their membership in the household of God. Are these widows genuine sisters in Christ? And that seems to be the point of verse 5 and 6 where Paul writes, The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So how they respond to their situation says something about the genuineness of their faith. And in the same way that family have a responsibility to look after family, the household of God has a responsibility to look after the household of God. So in the words of Galatians, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, only God knows uh, the heart of all of us. So for us mere mortals, we need to look at things like behaviour and attitudes as indicators of genuine faith. And so Paul gives some examples of what genuine faith looks like. So things like being faithful to a husband, embracing her role as a mother, showing hospitality and washing the feet of believers. Now, that last one about washing the disciples' feet comes from the example of Jesus at the Last Supper where he washes the feet of his disciples and tells them to do likewise. And so our willingness to humble ourselves and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ is one indicator of genuine faith. Now, if we come to church simply to consume, 
then we really haven't understood the whole purpose of church. And if we feel we're above cleaning the toilet, then we haven't understood what it is to serve or to really understand humility. So Paul is saying, if you have to choose who is going to be on this list, choose widows who have a genuine need and choose widows who have a genuine faith, who are a genuine part of this church community. So what advice does Paul have for the younger widows, those who don't fit into this group? And it's probably fair to say that he is a bit critical. In fact, some people would read this passage and feel that Paul has a particular thing against women. I think that's a particularly unhelpful reading of the passage. Paul has opened this passage by saying, you know, treat older women like mothers and younger women with all purity. But here in Ephesus, there is a particular issue facing these young widows, who in the words from earlier, are living for pleasure. And we know from other sources that in the Roman world in the first century, there was a movement amongst the women uh, to really redefine their role in a society, so throw off the shackles of those former expectations. And so, you know, to reject the idea of marriage or to reject the idea of children and to live independently. And for some of these young widows, uh, they've really been influenced uh, by this movement and started to embrace it for themselves. And now there's no doubt that these young widows have experienced enormous tragedy. They are young women who have already lost their husband. But they are now trying to find themselves by not turning to God for comfort, but turning back to their pagan culture uh, to find their new identity. And Paul is critical on a number of levels. So for starters in verse 11, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. The problem isn't marriage per se. The problem is that they're forsaking their first pledge. Now, Paul isn't completely clear about what that first pledge is, but most likely he's talking about their commitment to Christ, their commitment to following Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And so when the opportunity comes along to marry again, they trade in their faith to go back to their former culture, their former pagan culture and their former way of life. Our culture really doesn't understand why Christians are so committed to marrying Christians. Because for them, faith is a bit like golf. If your husband or wife play golf, then it's going to impact your marriage. And it might even frustrate you at times. It's going to mean that every Saturday that person's absent for, for golf. But you work around it and you just sort of incorporate it into your life together. And from our culture's perspective, it's the same with faith. So love comes first, and then faith kind of fits into that hobbies category. Uh, It certainly shouldn't dictate who you marry. But for Christians, our commitment to Christ doesn't just shape how we love, but also who we love and who we marry. And marriage is a little bit like a three-legged race. You know, when you're bound together, when two become one, and you're running in the same direction when you're in sync with each other, then that is a wonderful thing. Uh, In three-legged race, not always particularly dignified, but wonderful. 
But if you're not running in the same direction, if you're out of sync with one another, then life can become very hard and very frustrating. And for some, they simply give up on their faith. It's just too hard and they sit down. And so that has real implications for them and their salvation and potentially for their children and their salvation as well. In the words of our passage from last week, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So for those who are single within our community, for those who are single watching now, and whatever your age and stage of life, can I encourage you to choose wisely who you love romantically? Uh, Love is incredibly powerful, but it's not an irresistible force. We can choose who we love. You know, love needs to be grown. It needs to be nurtured. So let's grow and nurture a love that builds and honours our commitment to Christ. But the issue for Paul isn't just who they marry. Uh, The issue is also how they're spending their time. So in verse 13, Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. We know gossip isn't just a women's issue, but it was certainly an issue for these young widows in Ephesus, and it was incredibly destructive. There's an old saying, an idle mind is the devil's playground, and that certainly seems to be true in this situation. So these young women aren't using their time to build up and encourage their sisters in Christ. They're using their time for idle gossip. And inevitably, gossip undermines relationships, and it undermines our fellowship together as Christians, and it undermines our unity together. And I think we can all relate to the danger of too much time. When we're bored and lonely, it's easy to fall into temptation. You know, for some of us, it's the temptation of gossip. You know, we just like knowing what other people don't know. That gives us a sense of significance and power. For others, idleness leads to us looking for excitement and something that's going to make life more interesting. And so many affairs have begun simply out of a position of boredom and looking for something that will make life exciting. In our context, often when we're bored, we gravitate to the TV, and what we watch always has a message. Uh, Sometimes that message is really unhelpful and in our face, and we kind of see those ones coming. Uh, But more often, they're they're subtle. Uh, They undermine the confidence we have in, in our faith in God. They undermine the values we have and what God wants for us and how he wants us to live. And certainly when we've got idleness and boredom and access and anonymity, things like pornography become that much more tempting. And so we can all relate to the danger of having too much time. And the solution is to fill our lives with godly purpose. So how do we use our time to be a good husband or wife or friend? How do we use our time to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we commit time to be really present with our kids when we're home? For most of us, we're home more, but how do we use it to be really present? Now, there still needs to be room for rest and fun, and alone time is a good thing in its right place. But those things are different to idleness. For these young widows, Paul is encouraging them 
to find godly purpose in getting married and having children. Uh, it's advice. It's not a command. And it's said in the context of a culture that's speaking very directly against marriage. And so he wants to say to them, marriage is good. He's not speaking against work. Uh, he's not speaking against singleness. And certainly in 1 Corinthians, he spends more time talking about uh, why singleness is good. But here he wants to commend marriage and having kids. And he wants to speak against idleness and this expectation that they should be able to live this free life and do what they want and live however they want and at the same time be entitled to support from the rest of the church community. And so Paul wants to say to these young women, you need to take responsibility for yourself. And that's true for every Christian. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians he says, if you are unwilling to work, uh, then you will not eat. So we all have responsibility uh, to take our time seriously. But this passage has primarily been about widows. And at the same time, there's been lots of other big themes. So things like how we respect and give due honour to those around us at church, how we support those in need, the need to put Christ first in our romantic relationships, the destructiveness of idleness, the value of godly purpose, and the importance of personal responsibility. So out of all of these good themes, uh, what's perhaps one that's really standing out to you? What's one that's, you know, the Holy Spirit is really sort of pressing on your heart today that you go, that's something that I really need to work on. So as we think about that, let me close and pray that what God has started, uh, he's sown a seed here today, that that might grow into genuine change for us. Let me pray. Dear Lord, as we have reflected on your word today, help us to respect one another. Help us to be willing to humble ourselves and serve one another. Help us to flee the temptation that comes with idleness and help us to love the vulnerable in our church community in a way that honours you. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today. We pray sincerely that you have been challenged and you've been encouraged and we do ask that uh, you consider some of the ways in which you might uh, live out that which you've learnt this morning or today. So as we close today, let me conclude in prayer. So let's uh, just bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for today. We thank you for what we have learnt. And we just ask that you go before us, preparing the work for us to do. And Lord, that you will encourage us and stretch us as we undertake your work for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.